And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello, welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am still J. David Weeder, and as always, and always will be, you can call me Dave. This is still a show all about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. Normally, I'm going to be reading Daredevil comics, enjoying Daredevil comics, and talking about enjoying Daredevil comics. Only now I'm part of a huge podcast network, an audio empire, if you will. And this is the first episode as a fully ingrained part of Two True Freaks, and I am psyched. Now, I do have to apologize up front. This episode was delayed by two weeks. That is due to a massive toothache. The pain was unbearable, and I know in the world there are things that hurt more than a toothache, but darn it, it did not feel like it. And with the perfect storm of suck that was the month of July, schedule-wise, all of my episodes had been eaten up. See, knowing there was going to be a bottleneck in the schedule during the month of July, I aggressively made episodes and stocked up just to prepare for it make sure I am covered. What I didn't know was just how off July was going to be. The computer dying, everything, so on and so forth. So when it came down to it, when I couldn't talk on a microphone or focus because of pain medication, I decided it's probably in our best interest to not make an episode. At least not until everything is resolved with the root canal. So, mea culpa, I am back in action. I'm going to be aggressively making episodes once again, so we do have a nice stockpile, just in case of the next terrible disaster to come along. Let's hope that's a few months out at least. I do need a little recovery time. But here we are, first episode of Two True Freaks. Again, I'm excited, I'm ready to go, and I'd, I'd written an introduction to kind of start this new era of the show. And when I went back over it before recording today, I looked at it and like, what was I thinking? It just comes off as a terrible, terrible stand-up. Let me give you a little taste of what could have been. You know, when Dufresne DiManzo came to me with an offer I couldn't refuse, he told me that there would be a lot of zeros involved. He didn't say they would be leading zeros. I got here at the local chapter of the DiManzo Core Studios, and it looks like the set of WKRP in Cincinnati. I'm expecting Gordon Jump to walk out any time. There's shag carpet. Shag carpet! And I don't mean it's just shaggy and lustrous. No, it looks like the irredeemable shag giving a thumbs up and a wink. Impossible to work in these conditions! There are entire racks of 8-track tapes and most of it is the band Alabama with some Juice Newton mixed in. And a giant poster of Lee Iacocca! Come on! You know, things seem like a good idea up front. After the fact, not as much, so my goal now is to make sure it is the best show I can produce. I want to make sure I live up to the two true freaks standard of quality. And that's why I was playing around with what I was going to cover on my first episode out, and originally it was going to be the death of Gene DeWolf. And we are going to get to that in the coming weeks, but, you know, there was an email that, as I mentioned, it's been sitting in my box for a while. I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to approach it. 
It brings up a lot of things I really do want to talk about, but I wanted to talk about them at length and kind of give the email its due, and as well as the topic, which is the Netflix Daredevil TV series. And I feel like this was a good time to do another follow-up episode using this email as a template. We're about five months out, give or take, from the original debut and the binge-watching, and that euphoria that you feel right after you see something has kind of faded. At the same time, we are seeing Season 2 shape up, slowly but surely. So it seemed like a great time. The email provided that perfect framework. So this week, we're revisiting the Netflix Daredevil series. We can't seem to handle one man in a mask. I could understand if he had an iron suit or a magic hammer, maybe. Justice is a matter of asking the right people the right questions in the right tone of voice. Then forgive me for being blunt. This man in the mask... Take care of him. Your outfit kind of sucks, by the way. Yeah, it's a work in progress. A few quick things on season two as far as what we've seen so far. Season two will feature the Punisher in some capacity, a greater or smaller. It's been debated. IMDb lists Bernthal as being in only a handful of episodes, but IMDb was massively wrong on the first season. So I don't think that's a guide to go by. The producers really are billing this as Daredevil vs. Punisher, and you know what? I am down with that. Down like Chinatown. As far as Bernthal being cast as the Punisher, I think he'll be great. I've seen him play military characters before. He's got the military haircut, which fits with a former Marine, which Frank Castle is. As long as he doesn't do his backwoods Shane accent, I think things are going to turn out really well. I kind of had a knee-jerk reaction of, oh no, not him, because I hated his character Shane on The Walking Dead so much, and, well, for those that read the comics, most of the time I was wondering, why is he still here? So as long as we don't get Punisher by way of Shane from Walking Dead, I'm psyched. I think this is going to be great, and I think it'll be a gritty, gritty Punisher. And I'm somebody who liked the Thomas Jane movie. I'm more excited about this than that. I think it's very, very focused. It's yet again another unique, yet appropriate choice. Likewise, we have Elektra coming in for Season 2, which I am incredibly excited as I've been working on an Elektra episode, which will be coming out in a few weeks' time. And when the announcement came down that Elodie Young was cast, I immediately did a Google search, didn't know the name, and one of the first images to come up was her in G.I. Joe Retaliation. But Elodie Young looks truly exotic, which Elektra should. She should have an otherworldly feel. And the picture of her in Retaliation had her in a red bodysuit with katanas. And I thought, oh, they've already costumed her? That was quick. And for the most part, that's all we know. Elektra and the Punisher will be there. It's more of the same, building on what we've had in the first season, which is incredible. I really hope there's a lot explored, and I'm going to be talking about some of those things I want to see explored as we go through today's episode. Now, before I jump into the email proper, I'm going to go ahead and give a cursory spoiler warning. From here on in, I'm not going to be pulling punches. I'm going to be talking about the Daredevil Netflix series, the first season, what worked, what didn't, how has it settled with me after all this time? And simultaneously, I'm going to be talking about, you know, those things I do want to see in season two and some of my expectations. Now, normally, I like to read an email in full and then respond to it with few exceptions. With this particular email forming the basis of the show and just the format of the email giving me point by point, I'm going to go through the email and respond. And said email is from listener Ziggy Manifer with a subject line that says, just a few things to bring up about the TV show. And Ziggy writes, So I listened to your TV episode of Daredevil and I loved it, but I still think there's a lot to talk about for the show. Hopefully you will do a follow-up because I think there's a lot to go over and a few criticisms slash ideas that should be brought up. Indeed, it's difficult to say this isn't the single best on-screen adaptation of any comic book character ever made. 
Yes, even better than The Dark Knight. There's so much subtext, references, metaphors, and downright interesting ideas here, it's almost impossible to even start unpacking them. No other film or television program has even come close to achieving this. Before we jump into the point-by-point point on this email, let me respond to Ziggy's introduction. I have to agree that this is one of the best interpretations. Adaptation is kind of a tricky word. As far as interpreting the core of the character and what makes him great, what makes his relationship with Fisk and Foggy and everything else work, this show nailed it. Did it go point-by-point point directly from the comics? No, and that was actually a delight. That left a lot of surprises in store, and most of them pleased. Yeah, there's just so much to the tapestry of this show, it's impossible to really unpack all of it, and I don't expect to, to be honest with you. And as mentioned in my first Daredevil Netflix special, there are plenty of shows covering this in depth, episode by episode. The Defenders podcast is covering it, Welcome to Level 7, and several other shows on iTunes that you can track down. What I'm doing is more, again, another bird's eye view, so to speak, looking at the macro rather than the micro. But with that, let me get into Ziggy's points. Ziggy's first point. The relationship between Kingpin and girlfriend not believable. It's not clear why she would choose to date Kingpin. Last we see, she is not sure if she wants to date him or not. The chemistry between them is good, but the motivation is not there. And that's kind of a relevant point, Ziggy. Um, I will agree to some extent. However, with Vanessa as a character, both in the comics and as she was portrayed, there's a deeper darkness to her which plays within the themes of the show, Daredevil having that darkness and overcoming it, Kingpin having that darkness and being consumed by it, so to speak, and Vanessa kind of plays between two of those. But in the comics, we've seen Vanessa become unhinged. Take a look at the Underboss storyline. She does have a darkness within her, and maybe she sees some of her in him or some of her light can be shed on him. Maybe a little bit of Florence Nightingale syndrome, if you will, but also... I think Vanessa likes the attention. I think she's extremely flattered by the way Fisk treats her. She likes the power that he represents and the opportunity. She did mention in the first dinner the man in the ascot and white suit that she went to bed with because of the way he presented himself. We'll put it nicely. And likewise, I think that power over him, the idea of shedding her light on him or maybe some of her darkness, I think that plays into a lot of her attraction. It's not that she sees him as a puppet, uh, nothing like that, but I also think that she sees where she can influence something on a larger scale. Look at the cufflinks. Look at the changes made after she comes into his equation. She can be both the savior or she could very well be his damnation. She's definitely a wild card here, and I think that's why the relationship ended up working overall. That and the chemistry, as you mentioned. There does seem to be a pure unbridled infatuation between the two. That doesn't necessarily mean that it had to lead to a, an engagement ring, but it is what it is. And likewise, Fisk likes the attention. He likes the changes she brings to his table. She ends the cycle of being a reclusive, hidden figure and brings him out into the light. Literally. Think about it. When Fisk makes his public debut, it's during broad daylight. Yet another metaphor, if you will. So the motivations are there, the raw material, if you will, but I think what this suffers from is a compression. Most of the focus in terms of that particular subplot is on the effect of the relationship rather than the mechanics of the relationship. And while the metaphor is good, it gets muddled in that compression. With Vanessa, you have that middle ground between Matt and Fisk, the sort of overlapping area, if you will, in terms of darkness and light. And we see Vanessa kind of become a compass needle between the two of them, and she could be a very good divider at the same time. But it never comes to fruition, and really, she sees both of these men who both want to make their city a better place, using completely different methods. 
And she ends up being that middle ground that never really comes to full fruition. But she's still out there, isn't she? And I think there's a certain degree of buy-in to Fisk's vision that she may have taken with her. And I think Vanessa is going to be very much a wild card when we get to season two. And I'm really excited to see that. When I was a kid, I used to dream what it would be like to... to live somewhere far away from Hell's Kitchen. Somewhere beautiful. What made you stay? I didn't. When I was 12 years old, my mother, she sent me to stay with relatives at a farm, middle of nowhere. Those were good years. But you came back? Yes. Time and distance that afforded a certain clarity. I realized that the city was a part of me, that it was in my blood. And I would do anything to make it a better place for people like you. Ziggy's next point. The scene with Karen and Foggy saying this is how it should be, this is not earned in only 13 episodes. It needed more time to develop the relationships between them before Karen says a line like that. And again, I'm inclined to agree. It is an odd line. However, I think with mass entertainment, you do have to make certain concessions for a broader audience. There are audience members that won't necessarily get subtlety. And sometimes they just have to be told that things are good for, I guess, satisfactory resolution, if you will. I think the sentiment behind the line is close. And the reason I say that is that we have a Karen that is very different from her comic book counterpart, at least in the early stages. Karen notably has a shady past, and I don't see that forming strong relationships or a sense of stability. However, with Matt and Foggy, she does have that sense of stability and good, healthy working relationship as well as friendships. And on the other side of that coin, her arrival really upset this apple cart in both their professional lives and their friendship, which got strained through the events of the season. So she disrupted the harmony that was there, and Karen knows that. She realizes her effect, and I think the fact that that friendship was back on stable ground at the end of the season, that's what she's commenting on, that her guilt has been absolved for wrecking that. And that guilt, that motivation, I think that's going to be a strong, strong piece of season two. She's got a lot on her shoulders. You know, she's kind of a force of chaos, not intentionally, but it just surrounds her. Then you add in the idea that she is, to some extent, responsible for Ben Urich getting killed. Not just on the fact that she set him on the path of investigation, but she did instigate the visit to the nursing home and Fisk's mother. That was all created by her, and as a result, Ben ended up dead. And let's not forget her murder of Wesley. That's unresolved. That's going to come back to bite her in a big, big way. And I don't think it's going to be a happy ending for Karen Page. But mark my word, I think Karen Page will be a character to watch in season two. I think she's going to get a really good storyline built off of what we left off in season one. And I think we're going to see some of the best Karen Page material yet in the second season. So I know it's not much in the way of repayment, but it is... um. My grandmother's recipe, and she made me promise only to serve it to my future husband. Oh. You know, it's like filled with virtue or something. I thought I detected a whiff of virtue in there. Not that I'm complaining, but you really should be thanking the nut in the mask. He's not a nut. I mean, he's a little weird. Oh, maybe. We're just glad you're okay. Here, here. Uh, if it weren't for you two, I'd still be in that cell. Job's easy when your client's innocent. 
All you did was tell the truth. Yeah, but you listened. Moving into the third point on Ziggy's email, Ziggy writes, Stick was a cool character and a nice story, but don't do self-contained episodes. Stick plays no role in the larger theme or conclusion of this season. Now, maybe this is foreshadowing, but as of right now, it seems like it does very little to progress the story. Stick just shows up and leaves. Also, it's not clear why Stick wanted to train Matt. And lastly, make it more clear that Stick is a master fighter. A very easy way to do this would be at the end of a fight, very slowly have him moving from extremely precise to at ease. Shows that he has a mastery of martial arts, but puts on a fake front of being a wobbly old man. This was a point I was really, really torn on. On one hand, the Stick episode was my favorite episode of the season, and it also presented a bit of a breather, being self-contained and right in the middle of the 13 episodes. This was following an increasingly intense sequence of episodes with Matt stuck in the building, with the Russians getting blowed up real good, and I think it led to a moment where we needed to step back and then reassess everything, and it also ended up being kind of a transition to the second half of the season, which changed focus a little bit. Now, on the other hand... It did play a setup more for season two than contributing anything to the current season. And that's a bit bothersome. That's like counting your chickens before they hatch. There's no guarantee there's going to be a season two. Nobody knew how this show was going to go over. And it also underlines the problems of a shared universe. We saw it in Age of Ultron, which a lot of it ended up being set up for Captain America Civil War, which will be set up for Infinity War, so on and so forth. And even though Daredevil is somewhat adjunct to the mainstream cinematic universe, it's still a part of it and it still has to reference that and it still uses those same techniques to build a bigger story, a bigger canvas. And sometimes that takes a hit. You have a positive on that front in terms of them mentioning offhandedly the incident, of course, what happened in the Avengers. But then you have aspects of this episode that we're setting up for a second season and that more questions were posed with this episode than were ever, ever answered. Such as you pointed out, it's not clear why Stick trained Matt. It will become clear. The end tag on that episode is very much leading me to believe that it is the traditional reason, which is Stick wants Matt to be a fighter on the side of the chaste, who exists to combat the hand. We're going to be getting more into the hand and the chaste down the road, so I'm not going to delve too far into it, but it could have been a little bit clearer that Stick had some sort of intention. Thematically, I thought Stick was very fascinating. He created this father figure of sorts, who was neither Jack Murdoch nor Fisk's father. It also reflected a little bit of an abusive nature in terms of the way he trained Matt, the way he kept Matt at arm's length, so to speak, which alludes slightly towards the abusive father that Matt beat up the first time, which led him to being Daredevil. And with that father figure element, it allowed the subsequent episodes in the season to begin flashing back to Fisk. So we start building the other side of the coin. So it is a transitional episode. Thematically, it does contribute, however, overall, in terms of the mechanics, no, it does not contribute a whole lot except a point of origin for Matt. But again, the main thing that stood out to me was the questions it raised and did not answer. What is Black Sky? Is it the Beast? Is it something completely unrelated? Is it even something for Daredevil or is that building towards Iron Fist? I don't know yet. And while that does pique my attention, it doesn't necessarily make a satisfactory viewing experience. Much like the end of the episode, Stone appearing and asking if Matt will be ready, it seemed more like a sacrifice, a building towards a future storyline rather than a resolution to the storyline we have in front of us. And as far as the master fighter aspect of Stick and going from precise to hobbly old man, I'll be honest with you, Stick doesn't front. He's never needed to. 
Ziggy's next point is more creative cinematography. Think about the use of colors, foreshadowing, perspective, angles. Look at Breaking Bad for inspiration. The show is heavy, dark, and gritty. Have the cinematography reflect that. Focus on mundane things. Wallpaper peeling, walls of graffiti, trash bags piling, hobos and trash cans with fires, old TVs, the gritty New York City, rusting train tracks, rats, sewers, etc. It helps set atmosphere. And you know, Ziggy, I do think they did a good job of setting that up. If you look at the very beginning of episode two, we start with panning forward on a street, which does have the aforementioned trash bags, the colors, which ended up being vibrant, the spots of blood on the ground, and then we come into Daredevil laying in the trash can. With what they were trying to accomplish with this season, with the aesthetic, trying to ground it in the real world, it kind of presented what I see as a challenge in a certain dark and gritty style with the real world setting. So they used what would have been present rather than creating something along the lines of one of my favorite movies, The Crow. With Daredevil, it's not set in a fictional world where people are completely resurrected, Nobu being an exception, I think. But they were very much moving forward on the reality aspect of it. So they used what was present, and I think for the most part, they used it well. However, saying that, I have to admit it was a little bit uneven, and some of that chalks up to different directors, different set designers. While it did play out like a 13-hour movie, it was individual episodes with individual hands in the pot, and that can make a difference. Some episodes saw greater camera work than others. Some episodes had more vibrant performances. That's just the nature of a TV show. But at the same time, while I, I somewhat agree with you that there could have been a few things, I don't want it to become style over substance. So most of that I would like to see evened out a little bit more cohesive in season two, but I'd rather them do tricks like they did with Matt's apartment, a pretty standard, straightforward loft apartment until you add a digital billboard and suddenly those waves of light and the colors make it otherworldly. So I want them to find more solutions like that rather than give us, say, gothic cathedrals, gargoyles, things of that nature. Ziggy's next point is something I've really wanted to talk about again for a while. Rosario Dawson, who patches up Daredevil, gets no conclusion. That's a similar problem with Stick. Sure, there doesn't need to be, but it does seem like her story goes nowhere. And having time to think this over, Ziggy, I agree wholeheartedly. I never completely understood Claire Temple's role in the overall scheme of things, and I don't know that the writers did either. And that brings it back to the idea of problems with a shared universe. It's been confirmed that Claire Temple is going to move into at least, aka Jessica Jones, if not all the Avengers series, forming a sort of ground-level Phil Coulson. And that's fine and all, I guess. But if you look back at Coulson's evolution, he was never completely distracting. He played in well in the first Iron Man, basically ended up in the background as sort of a spice, not a main ingredient. And that's where I think the show made its biggest misstep with Claire Temple. They tried to make her a main ingredient. She went from Daredevil's cut man to a romantic interest to I don't even know what. And it never sat right with me. Her storyline had no focus, no direction. And as much as I love Rosario Dawson, and I do, she was just not given a lot to work with. Most of your clear Temple moments happen in the second episode, where she could have just been a one-off guest, and I think that would have worked better. But, you know, Marvel seems to be making the big bucks, knowing what they're doing. They even turned Ant-Man into a profitable movie, so what do I know? I just run a podcast where I don't make money. Maybe I need to rethink my life. You gonna listen to me this time? Where am I? You're in my apartment. Who are you? I'm the lucky girl who pulled you out of the garbage. You see my face? Yeah. Great. 
Your outfit kind of sucks, by the way. Yeah, it's a work in progress. I... Okay, I really wouldn't try to move too much. You've got two or three broken ribs, probable concussion, some kind of puncture wound, and that's just the stuff that I know about. And your eyes? They're non-responsive to light, which isn't freaking you the hell out, so either you're blind or in way worse shape than I thought. Do I have to pick one? Ziggy's next point reads... Be sure to watch detail. If a table is broken in Matt's apartment, it should be broken in the next episode. And I agree, Ziggy. However, I think this show did a lot better than most shows would do with that sort of continuity. For example, Karen's bruises from being choked in the jail lasted for several episodes. Cuts on Matt's face, uh, bruises, injuries went through several episodes. And again, that's kind of making those concessions that you have to make with entertainment. If Matt gets a beatdown in one episode, we kind of want him back on his feet as soon as possible or you have no direction. Sure, you've got the passage of time to play with, but you kind of need your title hero. And let me give you an example. On NCIS, there was an episode where Mark Harmon's character got shot. So at the end of the episode, he's got an injury, his arm is in a sling. The next episode, no mention of the injury. They have to bring in those viewers. If you have Mark Harmon laid up, well, it's not really going to fly, is it? We need our hero. And this show... It walked that tightrope pretty well. It does have some flaws. They put out the idea of Matt meditating, allowing him to heal a little bit faster. And sure, if you're dealing with a restful state, as most people who've ever had a cold or something along those lines, it allows the body to recuperate. But it was a bit of a flimsy giveaway. I'll allow it, but I don't like it. Ziggy's next point is the suit is okay, but could be much better, particularly the helmet. Look at the Frank Miller suit for better inspiration. The suit didn't sit with me as well as I thought it would, so I do agree with you there. For me, I agree it is the helmet. It really still reminds me too much of Batman Forever and Val Kilmer's sonar costume from the end of that movie. Most of the main bodysuit I'm okay with. I'd like them to add the DD logo at some point. But they did leave themselves a door open on that because they said it's a work in progress that Melvin Potter hadn't had a chance to fully finish it yet. And I think with Daredevil being the success that it was in season one, there's probably going to be a bit more costuming budget in season two. And I think we're going to see a more streamlined, comic accurate, yet real world equivalent of Daredevil's costume in season two. And I'm looking very much forward to it. Next up, Ziggy says every now and then dialogue would be too silly. Like when Kingpin tells Daredevil, I respect you because of your ideology. Way too on the nose. Show, don't tell. Subtext, subtext, subtext. And Ziggy, with that, it kind of comes back to those concessions that I mentioned. The idea of appealing to a broad audience who may not be able to read into the subtext to the level that others could. And the goal with something like this is to capture the broadest audience possible. So we end up with some of those weird dialogue moments such as this is the way it's always supposed to be. I respect your ideology. Just to put it on the table for that subset. So while some of the dialogue did hit me oddly, I kind of see the reason behind it. Ziggy's next point we kind of talked about a bit. Ziggy says, watch the timeline. If Daredevil gets cut up by blades, it should be several days before he can fight again. And I still agree. And I kind of mentioned my dislike of the meditation as healing. It's Daredevil. He's street level. He's not Wolverine. He's not Odin who does the Odin sleep. But at the same time, you've got that idea that you need your hero in the mix to some greater or lesser extent. And it kind of comes back to that broad audience appeal. Ziggy's next point is very small things that Kingpin does seem to break character. Like when he's having his final confrontation with the owl. He begins to explode but suddenly stops due to the owl having leverage. One would assume he wouldn't be able to control his rage no matter what was said next as he is described as a child. 
And I think that scene is a very good example of, of Kingpin and the way his mood shifts. I think there's a valid point in there that he wouldn't necessarily break his berserker rage, and I don't know that he did, in a way. Kingpin has always been about control, control of his environment and control of self, as seen by him flipping an omelet every morning, picking out the exact same thing, going through his routine. And while that does decay as he starts blowing up on Owsley, as soon as Owsley put down that he had leverage, Kingpin needed to hear it. He needed to know what the leverage was. So I believe there's always some degree of maintenance and control, which gets scarier for the character when you think about things like decapitation by car door. And to reference that scene in terms of what we're talking about, Fisk had had some time to think that over. By the time he got to the Escalade and dragged the Russian out, he knew that dude was toast. So there's an intent to it, and there's a focus to that rage, which is why Wesley got the call ahead of time, letting Kingpin know exactly where the guy was. So there's always a bit of control and a, a potential focus. The rage is there, but Fisk is able to focus it correctly. So he gets the information needed and then, well, he kills Owsley. So while there is a large childlike quality to Fisk in this show, you also have that adult voice in his brain pointing in the right direction so he doesn't end up with an accidental death on his hands like his father. And while we're on the subject of Owsley, how cool is it that a character who's known for flying in the comics dies from falling down an elevator shaft? One of my favorite moments of irony in the entire season. Ziggy's next point is, I believe Kingpin could have set up a hostage to get himself out. His realization that he is the villain doesn't seem earned. I don't understand if he was so delusional to believe he was the hero to begin with. Why would a few men being arrested make him think he was the villain? It seems Kingpin's philosophy is that people must be controlled to make a better city. Challengers must be stomped out, and he only has the insight needed to do this. Therefore, he bought out a huge number of people. This is one of the more interesting aspects of Kingpin. I'm glad you brought this up as I thought about it more and more, especially the whole man of ill intent scene. I don't think Kingpin was delusional. I think he realized he was a villain. I think he realized that the method that he used to achieve his goal was evil. He even says, I'm going to hurt people. I have hurt people. He's aware of who he is to some extent. And I don't think that speech was necessarily a revelation to himself, but more saying, okay, you know what? At this stage, I have nothing to hide. People know I'm a bad guy. Let's make it clear just how bad I am and how willing I am to go anywhere to achieve my goal. In a way, it was kind of the final evolution of the Fisk character. He went from being a recluse hiding in the shadows, not allowing his name to be stated, to everybody knowing his name, to everybody knowing who he is and what he is about. To put it succinctly, Kingpin stopped fronting. He's not screwing around anymore. He's unbridled, he's ready to take on anybody and anything, and nothing is going to stop him except, of course, Daredevil. Which brings me to Ziggy's next point, conveniently. The final fight between Kingpin and Daredevil didn't seem quite as climactic as one might hope. I was hoping to see Daredevil truly pushed to his limits, screaming and shouting and very nearly killing Fisk. Nothing tops the hallway scene done in the second episode. And I believe this wholeheartedly. I wouldn't say it was a disappointment, but more by the numbers. It was predictable. And sadly, it's true, nothing tops the hallway scene. They peaked on their second episode in terms of fight choreography. That's not to say the fights that came after were horrible, but it became pretty repetitive, especially this fight, which should have been the ultimate climax. Rewatching that fight scene, it just didn't really get the blood pumping. You never felt like there was Daredevil's life on the line. And you never felt like Daredevil was pushing himself too hard. Even when Kingpin had the upper hand, you still felt this time that Daredevil had it under control. So it lost some of the suspense of the fight. And the intensity was pretty mundane, to be honest with you. 
Even Fisk didn't seem as enraged as he should have that this man in a mask has taken down everything he's worked for all these years. It really was a, a bit of a misfire in terms of final fights. But I think, and I'm free to be corrected on this, I think that final fight was pretty much there to debut the costume and set the tone for the character going forward to complete that origin. And it leaned that way more than actually giving us the ultimate climax that we deserved. So it was a bit of a dud, but not by any means the most horrible thing on the planet. It's not something I can throw stones at and say, this is awful, this is terrible, it's just not as good as it could have been. So Ziggy, you and I are on the exact same page on that final fight. Moving to the next point, Ziggy writes, We can buy that Karen won't start to wonder why she can never reach Matt Murdock at night for a while, but eventually she would start to see scars or begin to wonder. It's already established that she is not stupid. And yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Again, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I think this is a very different, more fleshed out Karen Page and a very interesting character in her own right. And I think season two holds a lot for Karen, including, and I'm willing to put money on this, learning that Matt is Daredevil. I don't think that secret's going to stay hidden from her for very long. And I, for one, am very excited to see where Karen goes in season two. Very, very excited. And Ziggy's final point reads, This is film noir daredevil. It could use more of people smoking cigarettes, smoky backdrops, large spinning fans, steam coming out of sewers. This might make a cool fight scene. Victim thinks he's hiding in the steam. Daredevil can see him in it. For one thing, Ziggy, let me start at the end here. That scene, the idea of the villain hiding in the steam thinking he's hidden, and Daredevil seeing him move around, phenomenal. I do hope that plays out at some point. With some of those, it comes back to that idea of, of keeping the aesthetic in the real world without overdoing it. But most of it, I think, could be done. Large fans that could throw off Daredevil's senses. I think there's a lot more potential than they tapped in Season 1. Or more accurately, more potential than they could have tapped in Season 1. It was just kind of a big undertaking. And really, it, sometimes they played it safe, and rightfully so. And sometimes they really went bold. In terms of people smoking cigarettes, well, that's a, that's a no-no. Parental groups would be up in arms, even though this is a very mature, hard-edged superhero tale. Somebody would bitch. Mark my word. We can show people selling and moving drugs, using drugs, because they're the bad guys, but somebody lights up a cigarette, bad, bad, bad. And you know, for a long time I was wondering about the steam coming out of the sewers. I always thought that was just an effect for visual flair in movies and TV shows. But actually, a lot of New York does use steam heat. Con Ed has those, and there are release valves that will release that pressure from the system. So that is very rooted in reality, and I think that's something they could play with. And visually, I think it would be really, really cool. And Ziggy's email wraps up, Okay, that's everything, and let me make this clear, it's only because the show is so well done that these things stood out at all. 99% of the time, the show is firing on all cylinders. And Ziggy, I agree with that final assessment wholeheartedly. Outside of the final fight, the costume itself, which I'm kind of middle of the road on, and the whole meditation as healing thing, I have very little to gripe about. The things I thought I would not like or the things that I was trepidous about when the show was coming down the pike, I ended up loving. For example, the proto costume, the black bodysuit. My first response was, oh no, it's Rex Smith again, but it worked so well visually and Charlie Cox pulled that off. Sure, every now and then, an awkward angle would make it look a little weird, but when you get that profile, for example, when he's face down in the puddle and pushes himself back up with that blood draining out of his mouth, that profile is phenomenal. So by about three episodes in, I wasn't so much waiting for the costume to show up. I was more excited to see this version of Daredevil. And yes, I would like to have seen Matt go after the Fixer and avenge his father, but that's just another thing we can set up for season two. And I think we will see that in season two, so mark that as another prediction. The themes were fairly well established. The idea of fathers joining both Matt and Fisk split down the middle. 
themes we've seen in the comic book, so they are organic to these characters. We also have that idea that nobody has clean hands in this universe. But it never succumbed to its darkness, which again was one of my main fears. Was it gritty? Yes. Did it have dark moments? Absolutely. Did it ever become all-encompassed by that darkness? Oh no. There were still humorous bits to be had, there were daylight scenes, there was the idea that it wasn't stifling. We didn't see Daredevil crouch next to a gargoyle, or any Christ-like poses, you know those. We just saw something that was tangible, realistic, and even though the show was originally described by Jeff Loeb as Batman without money, it didn't play out quite as ridiculously wink-wink as I thought it would in terms of that. So it's very, very much a win in my book in terms of this show. And I think now that they've established that aesthetic, the foundation they have to build on is going to be phenomenal. And I think season two is likely going to eclipse the first season. And I have nothing but excitement for the second season. No trepidation at all. But Ziggy, I definitely appreciate you dropping that email, allowing me to revisit the show with you. I do apologize for the length of time it's taken me to get back to emails. That is something that will be no longer a factor as I have a much better working relationship with time and organization now. So emails will become regular. And in fact, speaking of email, what I'm going to do is take a quick break and come back with yet another email. I'll be right back after this promo for Pop Culture Affidavit, hosted by Tom Paneris, one of the best shows on the internet. And we'll bring this episode in for a landing. Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. All right, before we call it a week, let's do one more email. This one's from Jason Sandberg with the subject line of episode 58 in a new era. Jason writes, Dave, congrats on the move to the Two True Freaks Network. It's a great fit for your show, and I hope it facilitates more guest appearances on other podcasts. Perhaps your show will host the TTF panels when future seasons of Daredevil hit Netflix. Regarding episode 58, I have a soft spot for those hostess ads, so thanks for spotlighting that niche of Marvel fandom. Part of the fun was trying to figure out who the artists were. I would often guess that it was Sal Buscema penciling and Ramita Sinnott inking. In this age of decompressed storytelling, wouldn't it be funny to see Brian Michael Bendis attempt to tell a story in just six panels? I also laughed when you suggested that some heroes ought to equip themselves with a few hostess treats. Criminal psychologists have told us that hoodlums have poor impulse control. It just might work. I confess that I do enjoy those frosted vanilla zingers from time to time. Can I suggest you check out Silver Surfer Issue 7 by Dan Slott and Michael Allred? In that issue, the Silver Surfer has a brief skirmish with the fruit pie fanatical Ding-a-Ling family. Yes, the same intergalactic hostess hillbillies that menaced Thor in 1977. The presence of the Ding-a-Lings in Marvel continuity means we could get Johnny Punk and McBrain popping up someday. But if so, let's hope those stories aren't written for the trade. Thanks, Jason Sandberg. Now, thank you, Jason, for not only listening to that episode, but giving some feedback, and those vanilla zingers are the bomb. I love the idea of criminals not having that impulse control, and it kind of makes sense. But you'd have to have a lot of treats if you're Daredevil, because you run into a lot of hoodlums. 
As of now, there's not really any concrete plans as far as the Daredevil Roundtable or anything to do with Season 2 yet. And I like being part of Two True Freaks. Again, they're a great group of people, my friends. The visit to New York was definitely one of the highlights of the last few years. Getting to know these guys and feeling comfortable in my skin around them. It's a pretty phenomenal feeling to be a part of it, to be honest with you. And I want to once again extend my thanks to Scott Gardner, Chris Honeywell, and of course Mike Voiles, who is the webmaster here. As well as everybody who has said congratulations, and just seeing the excitement level pop up for this show coming to the Two True Freaks Network. And until you mentioned it, I had completely forgotten about Silver Surfer number 7. That was one of my favorite comics when I had a pull list. Now I'm just a little bit too burned out to have a pull list. But I would always look forward to Silver Surfer when it eventually came out. And if you're looking for just a good, fun comic and you're on Marvel Unlimited, do track down Mike Alred and Dan Slott's Silver Surfer, especially if you're a Doctor Who fan. That's kind of the take they took on the surfer, that he's basically the doctor. And it oddly works perfectly. So definitely check that out. I think Jason Sandberg is completely on point for that. And thank you once again for your email, Jason. If you want to drop the show a line, the address is mail, M-A-I-L, at daredevilpodcast.com. But that's going to wrap up this first episode on the Two True Freaks Network. Next week, we begin the death of Gene DeWolf. I'll be covering comics a little bit differently, a slight tweak, only a tweak. But I think you're going to enjoy these issues a lot. Even if Daredevil's not the main focus, there's a lot to be said. And I've really enjoyed making notes for this. So that will be next week with Spectacular Spider-Man number 107. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. And you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2 True Freaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.